Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Well, good morning to you, Lex City. It is an honor for me to be here with you. As you heard Zach mention, we're a part of a larger tribe or family of churches. There's about 65 in our region of Ohio, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Uh, one of my great joys is that I get to serve all of them and travel around to each of them along with my wife, Pam. Uh, what it also means is that I'm rarely here on a Sunday. And so this is one of my things I envy all of you is that you get to be here consistently and regularly. I love this church. Uh, when my wife and I have an opportunity to be in Lexington, we love to be here. We also have found a joy in connecting with the people of this church. We just moved here two years ago, and uh, my wife joined Life Group full of ladies. As a matter of fact, they've become good friends, and uh, they not only meet for Life Group, there's actually a group of middle-aged women that are terrorizing pickleball courts around the, the city, and I, I have become, I think, a, a pickleball widower, and uh, so... We also, though I'm on the road a lot, I try my best to be in town on Wednesday nights because that's when my wife and I have the joy of being with a young couple's life group. And I know you look at me and it's like, I'm not a young couple person. Maybe I married real young, you wouldn't know. But but actually, we get to live vicariously through a bunch of young couples that are come to our home every Wednesday night, and we just love the opportunity we have to connect with the great people of Lex City. So thank you for your part in that. I want to encourage all of you, if you're not a part of a life group, you ought to join one and get connected. It's great to get to meet the people of this church, and it feeds my soul to get the opportunity to be with you whenever I can. We just started last week. Pastor Dave opened us up with this study of the names of God. Uh, Today, you'll see one of the names of God, God Almighty, will show up in the story. More than anything, I want to give a little bit of a foundation to what it is that this is all about. Who is this God whose name means so many things, different titles, different roles, different areas that we can lean into him? And what is the character of this God? What is his attitude toward us that opens doors for us to experience him in phenomenal ways? To do that, I want to look through a story in the Old Testament. Uh, you, we'll put the words up on the screen. I'll share them with you. If you want to follow along, you can open to 2 Kings in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 3. You can follow in your Bible or Bible app that you have. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through a story and see what it reveals to us about us and about God. Now, I need to give you some advance notice because some of you will break into to hives. We're going to talk a little bit today about geography and history. And I know that some of you, you tried to avoid those classes in school at all cost. And I want you to walk a journey with me to see that indeed there's something special about knowing the depth of a story. Knowing a little bit of history, a little bit of geography, I believe will reveal the depths of the glory of God to us just a little bit more. We're going to walk a pathway together. So it starts, 2 Kings chapter 3. I want to start with just the first four verses. Uh, listen as I read and then follow with me. It says Joram, or in some translations, Jehoram. It's a variant of the same name in Hebrew. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of King Jehoshaphat, who was king of Judah. And he reigned for 12 years. 
He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel, that's Joram, a tribute, a tax of a 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. Now, let's just stop there and look at some of these names. If, if you're like me, when you read the Bible, these four, first four verses could be the part of a story that you would tend to just skim through and go, I want to get to the stuff that really is going to teach me something. I don't know who these people are. I don't know where this is. I don't know what they're talking about. I don't even know how to pronounce these names. As a matter of fact, you don't even know if I know how to pronounce them. As long as I sound confident, you think I'm saying them right. And we don't really know. But I just want to pause to say, there's some important things that stand out here. Joram, it tells us the name of his father in verse 1. It says, his father was Ahab. And if you grew up in church, you would know that his mother, therefore, was named Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, the most infamous couple in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, I can pretty well predict if any of you, you drop your kids off at daycare this week, none of them will have classmates named Ahab or Jezebel. They're just not names that we're going to use. I also will say this means that Joram grew up in what might be the most dysfunctional home ever. Now, I'm sure there's some of you in the room that might like beg to differ and compare. But I just want to say, Joram did not grow up in poverty. He grew up in the palace. But his mother and father were off-the-charts narcissists. They practiced the occult. They were into all of the dark side of the supernatural they were greedy as all get out. They didn't care who they hurt. They didn't care who they stole from. They didn't care who they ran over or who they killed. This is the home that Joram grew up in. Joram, son of Ahab, he became king when his father and mother passed away. If you want to read some interesting stories, they're not rated PG. You'll find out how his father and mother passed away came to rather horrible ends, and Joram takes the throne. Now, it says that Joram became king at the same time that there was a guy named Jehoshaphat who was king of another kingdom. Now, Jehoshaphat was generally a good and godly king. He was not perfect. We can find stories about him in the Bible. They go, yeah, yeah, home run here, not so much here. He was maybe like a lot of us. A person of noble intent, wanting to walk right with God, struggling to do it perfectly sometimes. Now, we find that actually there's two different kingdoms that are listed here. Joram is the king of something called Israel, and Jehoshaphat is the king of something called Judah. Now, I want to just show you where those are. We're going to put a map up here on the screen. So, Joram's up in the blue. That's Israel. Their capital is Samaria. They're Israeli people. They're Israelites, Jewish descendants. In the yellow, the gold, is Judah. Their capital is Jerusalem. This is where Jehoshaphat was in charge of. They're also Israelite people. They're all from the same lines of descendancy. 
So how did they end up being two separate kingdoms? I'm glad you asked. So quick thought for this. First, let's do a little bit of a trivia test. The first king of Israel, if you happen to know some Bible trivia, you would tell me that the first king ever of Israel was named what? Saul. Saul was his name, a man of great stature, leadership, a warrior. God said, hey, they're going to have a king. I want you to be the guy. Walk with me. Obey me. Follow me. If you do, watch what will happen. I will bless you. I will bless this nation. I will bless your descendants. It'll go really well. And Saul struggled to do that. Like many leaders today and in the Bible, he started well and finished poorly. He did not finish well. Ultimately, he was replaced. The second king, the most famous king of Israel, his star is still on their flag today. His name was David, King David, a man after God's own heart. He was succeeded eventually upon his death by his son, the wisest man who ever lived on the world and maybe the richest. His name was Solomon, wrote the Proverbs, all those sayings of wisdom. Solomon became king after David. And then when Solomon passed away, the next king of Israel was? Oh, we always hit this. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam, not so well known, mostly because he was an idiot. <laughs> you can read the story. He was a young guy who let power get to his head. He hung out with the wrong crowd. They gave him bad advice. He took their bad advice. He did not lead well. And in short order, the nation was in civil war. And ultimately, the nation of Israel split into two nations. One still called Israel. It's the blue part that you saw up there in the map. One, the gold part we saw on the map, which is Judah. Now, Rehoboam of the line of David and Solomon continued in Judah. Of all the kings of Judah, they all were of the lineage of King David. About half of them were good and godly kings, about half of them not so much. Up in the northern, we find another name that we read in those first four verses, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He was the first king, much like when God put Saul in place, God put Jeroboam in place with this new nation and says, hey, if you will follow me, if you'll be smarter than Rehoboam, if you'll do it better than he did, if you're willing to obey me, follow me, track with me, watch what I will do for you, for your family, for this nation. But he didn't do it. He had every opportunity. Jeroboam led the nation in blue, the nation of Israel, into sin and rebellion against God. Hence it says, time after time, that kings followed in the pathway of Jeroboam, leading people away from God. Actually, every single king up in Israel, in the blue part, every single king was a godless king. Not one was any better. Not one was godly. The worst was Ahab. Joram's father. That's our context. Now, we also heard something interesting in this story. It relates to this map here. It says that when Joram became king, Moab was at that time, you see Moab down there to the bottom right, to the southeast. Moab was essentially a vassal nation. They were under the thumb of Israel. They had to pay tribute. Let's call it tax. How much do nations like to pay taxes to an oppressive government somewhere else? Not so much. How much did we like it here in America? 
Not so much. Remember the Boston Tea Party? We're like, no, don't want to give any of our taxes to the King of England. Let's dump it in the harbor. This was our posture. By the way, Moab didn't like doing it either. So if you're going to thumb your nose at the oppressive nation, if you're going to stop paying taxes, when's a good time to do this? How about when there's leadership change, right? The strong, firm king has died. He's gone. The young whippersnapper's there. We don't know if he has any backbone or not. Let's test him. We're not paying tax anymore. So they stopped paying taxes. They put all their army on the border between Israel and Moab. They're like, we're not doing this anymore. Now, if you're the young leader, Joram, what are you going to do about this? This is a test of your leadership, right? So you're not willing to continue this way, so you're going to get your army together and prove that you're something. You're going to go after them. You're going to force Moab. You're going to strengthen your leadership from day one. And he says to Jehoshaphat, that he's going to get some help. Let's pick up the next few verses. Verse 5, but after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, Joram set out from Samaria's capital, and he mobilized all of Israel. He also sent out this message to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. You ought to read this with a whiny voice, okay? The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, Jehoshaphat said. Catch what Jehoshaphat says next. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. So what has Jehoshaphat done at this point? Jehoshaphat has basically said, hey, I'm with you, heart and soul. I'm with you no matter what. We're all Israeli people. We're all the same. Jehoshaphat was partly correct. He was partly not so smart. As a matter of fact, Jehoshaphat, this fairly godly king, served a long time. He served during three different kings up in the blue part on Israel. All three kings, you can find the stories in the Bible. With all three of those other godless kings, he formed a partnership, an alliance at their request at some point. In all three cases, it went poorly. And I'm really glad for this. Why? Aren't you glad that sometimes the people in the Bible are not perfectly wonderful, that sometimes they have to relearn a lesson or learn it again and again and again. This is like my life. Like if you were to come to me and go, so what are you learning now? I'm like, well, I'm learning the same lessons that I should have learned really well 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I keep making the same mistakes. I'd love to tell you that I got it all figured out. And Jehoshaphat's just like that. And I'm like, I'm so glad we're a part of the same support group. So, Jehoshaphat agrees to partner with Joram. He says, we're the same. And they were the same in bloodline, but they are not the same in values. They are not the same in faith. They are not the same in their heart. Now, why is Joram doing this? Joram asked for help. Well, he's a smart guy. He wants to seal the deal on his victory, but he has a plan in his mind. Jehoshaphat says, well, by what route shall we attack? And here's what Joram says. We're going to go through the desert of Edom. Now let's look at this map again and see what Joram's up to. On the map, we see Edom down at the bottom. By the way, Edom is a vassal nation to Judah under their thumb. So he's not allowed to just march his blue army through any other countries where he doesn't have a treaty. 
So he asked Jehoshaphat in the gold, are you willing to partner with me? Well, now he picks up permission to march through his country and he picks up his army. So now he's got two armies, permission to go down through Edom. By the way, he's gonna pick up the army of Edom because Edom has a forced treaty with Judah. They don't have a choice. So now he's got permission to go all the way down to the bottom and the backside. He's gonna pick up two extra armies plus his own and he wants to do a sneak attack from the rear. He wants to go around the backside and attack Moab because Moab has put all their army on the border with Israel. Sounds good, almost. So, verse nine, the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom and all their tens of thousands of soldiers and after a roundabout march of one week, seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or the animals that were with them. I say, well, why did they bring their animals? Did they each have their favorite kitty? What are they doing? Well, this is the day before MREs, meals ready to eat in the military. There's no refrigeration, no electricity. You bring the livestock with you. And they're seven days in the wilderness. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear the word wilderness. Here's what I envision, just the word wilderness. Brown, dead, nothing growing, like skulls of steer right? Little lizards scurrying across. No water anywhere. And lonely music playing. <laughs> and here is where tens of thousands of soldiers find themselves. You can go for quite a while without food, but you cannot go long without water. And so this brilliant sneak attack excursion puts them way back in the wilderness, no 7-Eleven, no water, no rain, and they're dying. So now we find an interesting thing, and this is probably true of our lives as well. We have big picture presenting problems that we are challenged by. They're gonna have a fight. They're gonna have a fight with Moab. There's gonna be a battle that's coming. But there's also immediate day-to-day -day needs we have, like I need water today. I haven't had water for a few days. I'm gonna die. I'm not going to be able to have a fight. I'm not going to be strong enough. I actually might not even live to get to the fight. There's big picture needs. There's immediate needs that we have. Now, I want you to catch what happens in the wilderness when they're all starting to die of thirst. Verse 10, here's what Joram says. What? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? Now, you may think that the Bible is this really serious book full of all kinds of stern and austere things. And I just want to tell you, sometimes the Bible is full of comedy. This is one of those spots. Did you catch what Joram just did? Here's a guy who doesn't follow God at all. He doesn't even believe in the true God. He's got his own religious backgrounds, all these things that he wants. He has no thought that he's ever consulted for God for anything. And when things get difficult in his life, what does he do? I can't believe God brought us here. He blames God. I love that this is in the Bible because actually there have been things that I have done without consulting God, without seeking God at all, and I've put myself in a bad position in life. And when things start to go south, what do I tend to do? Blame God. Maybe you're better than me but I tend to be a little bit like Joram. 
It's amazing how people of all persuasions, of all backgrounds, in a pinch, will tend to blame God. But Jehoshaphat speaks up, and he says this. He says, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Basically, he's saying, is there like someone here who could lead us in a prayer meeting? Now, this is a really brilliant move. It's about eight days too late, but it's a brilliant move. And here again, I'm grateful for what the Bible teaches us. It's best to talk to God first. It's best to consult him at the beginning. But it is never too late to turn to God. Never too late. Jehoshaphat should have talked to God well before this. Jehoshaphat shouldn't have been in the wilderness with his army. Shouldn't have agreed to any of this. If he would have listened to God at all, he'd be in a whole different setting. But... He's got himself in a predicament, and Jehoshaphat says, I think we need to hear the voice of God. And that's spot on. Now, I want you to catch what just happened. There's gonna be great intrigue here. There's three kings. They've got their close cabinets. Who gets to stand next to the kings? Only the closest of advisors, the most trusted of their leaders. So an officer of the king of Israel, that's Joram, the godless guy, an officer of Joram speaks up when Jehoshaphat says that, and he says, hey, that's a good idea. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. You go, well, what in the world does that mean? It means he was the closest servant to the prophet Elijah. Elijah, probably the most famous prophet of the Old Testament, maybe rivaled by Moses himself. Elijah, a prophet who would speak God's truth to kings, godly and godless. A prophet of miracles. And if there was to be a movie on this, we would find him to be the arch nemesis of Ahab, Joram's dad. So, I don't know what in the world this officer was doing knowing that there happened to be a prophet there. I don't know why the prophet who was apprenticed, trained, mentored by Elijah, who's now gone on to heaven, now there's Elisha, who is his successor as a prophet for the nations of God. I don't know why he's there. Is he like on vacation in the wilderness? You know, sipping iced tea, reading a Nicholas Sparks book. I don't know why he's there, but there he is. And this officer says, well, if you want to have a prayer time, Elisha's here, and I predict that all the air went out of the room because Joram would know all the context that basically his dad and Elijah were always at each other, and now the successor to each were going to be in the same room in the worst time of a predicament. This is astounding. And the moment of awkward silence is broken by Jehoshaphat. Because what does Jehoshaphat say? <gasps> I know him. The word of the Lord's with him. Basically saying, I saw him on God's channel. He's pretty good. <laughs> so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And they go down to, to meet with Elisha. And I want you to see what Elisha says to them as we come to the next verses. Elisha said to the king of Israel, 
why do you want to involve me? This is to Jeremy speaking. Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. I told you there's humor here, right? If you want to read an f- interesting story this afternoon, go read 1 Kings chapter 18. In 1 Kings act, chapter 18, we find an interesting thing takes place. Elijah is tired of Ahab and the nation of Israel not following God. He says, hey, you keep telling me there's these other gods. You have all your prophets of all your false religions. So we're going to do a little bit of a test. We're going to have a sacrifice here, a bull, a sacrifice here. All of you prophets of your false gods, Baal and everything else, you're going to pray. We're going to pray for fire to come down. And I'm going to pray that for mine. Whichever's the real God sends fire. Whichever can't do that, we know they're not a real God. They do this whole thing. There's 450 of Ahab and Jezebel's prophets, and they're doing their whole prayer thing, their dancing thing, their occult stuff, all these things, and they can't make fire come down on this. Eventually, Elijah starts to tease them. Well, maybe he's on vacation, or maybe he's kind of constipated and in the bathroom. Maybe your God can't do this right now. Maybe you have to take a number. And ultimately, he's like, there's enough of that. Pour water all over mine. They pour tons of water on his. He prays, and boom, in a moment, fire takes the sacrifice, the rocks. It leaves a crater in the ground. And I will tell you, Ahab was there watching that day. And there's a chance that his son Joram was with him. And Elijah had a great victory that day. God had the ultimate victory. And there's a chance that his mentor, his protege, Elisha, was there with him that day. They certainly, Joram and Elisha, knew the whole story. As a matter of fact, the 450 prophets of Baal were executed at the end of the story. So, now Elisha walks up. He sees Joram standing there. He's like, why in the world are you coming to me? Why would you talk to me? You don't even believe in my God. You have your own gods. Why don't you go to all the prophets of your father and mother? Oh, yeah, that's right. They're dead. That's funny. I mean, this is just dripping with sarcasm. And what does Joram do? No, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us in the hands of Moab. He is stubbornly, none of us in this room are stubborn, but he was stubborn, and he was going to continue to blame God for the difficulty he was facing. So I want you to see what Elisha says next and how this unfolds. As we move, next verse, Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty, there's the name of God, right? The Lord Almighty. As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not even pay attention to you, peasant. But then he goes on and he says, now bring me a harpist. I raised two girls, and my girls would look at me sometimes and say, Dad, you're so random. And I would say that that's what just happened here. We have this incredible story of intrigue, all kinds of suspense, everything is taking place. And in the middle of it, he's like, can I have a harpist? Like, can we have a little bit of music here? And I, like, why would he do that? I have just one thought for you. When you're in a difficult situation, when your blood pressure is boiling, when you're stressed, when you're angry, when you're frustrated, and all of the history of Joram and Ahab and everything is there in front of Elisha. It's time to not fully trust yourself. You need to get away with God. 
and he steps back. He says, I need a little time away from you all. If you could give me some worship music, if I could have like the, if I'm gonna listen to City Sound on my Spotify or something like that. And I just need to get away with God. And sure enough, when he gets quiet with God, he hears God's voice. And he comes back and he tells the kings that this is what the Lord says, I will fill this valley, this wilderness, with pools of water. Watch what I do. He actually tells the kings, it's not in every translation, but it's implied in the original language, that they're to have their soldiers get those little flippy shovels out and dig trenches, ditches in the wilderness. Why? He says, for this is what the Lord says, you will neither see nor hear the wind or the rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. Here's the key verse of everything in this story. Verse 18 says this, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. And he goes on to tell them about that. So, can you imagine if you're a soldier and the three kings come out from having their little prayer meeting, and they say, here's what we want you all to do. Dig your little ditches. There's gonna be a whole bunch of water here in, in the valley in the wilderness. Honest if we're true. It's coming. We're sure of it, we think. And they all get ready. And I don't know whether it was a storm God caused miles away. If you've ever been in a wilderness, you know it can rain 10 miles away and a flash flood can come through the valley that's parched with the sun on it where you're at. I don't know exactly how God did it. In some way or another, God has water flow through this valley in the wilderness where all these people are dying of thirst and about ready to have a fight. We also find that the rest of the story, it's fascinating. It says that this secret sneak attack from the rear was the worst kept secret. The nation of Moab had their satellites up, their drones flying overhead. They had their spies out. They knew all about this. They've moved all of their army down here to the southeast against this border where these three armies are. They're ready for them. And it says the next morning, they get up and they look out to the east as the sun is rising from the east and they see liquid out there in this valley and in the red clay and the wilderness of everything, it shines in the red morning sun like red liquid in a place where there's never water. And the nation of Moab can only conclude one thing, that those three jokers of kings and their armies couldn't even get along for one week together. And they've killed each other. And they've slaughtered everybody out there in that valley. And that leaves all their stuff for us. And we don't know for sure, but I predict they set down their shields and swords and went running up. Because at the end of the day, when there's lots of plunder, if, if Zach and I are standing side by side, I want the good stuff. He can have the other stuff. I want to run there faster than him. And the army of Moab went running into this valley filled with what they thought was blood of all these soldiers. And actually what they did is they ran fully into this army that's down drinking, being refreshed, and they were soundly defeated, the nation of Moab. And God gave a victory, an undeserved victory. Can I just say to you and me that every victory we experience is an undeserved 
victory. And I don't know where you fit in this story. Some of us are maybe a little bit like Joram. You might have huge trials and traumas in your life. You might have circumstances that are overwhelming. And some of you, like sometimes I've had to do, are gonna have to be like Joram and go, I know I wanna blame God. Joram did all the way through. We have no sense that he ever walked away from that. But you need, if you're gonna be honest, to acknowledge that whatever you're facing, you've caused it. It was your choice. You were selfish, you were rebellious, you were sinful. You did what you wanted to do regardless of what the wise thing was and you walked yourself into a wilderness of life. And I just want you to know that God shows up for the Jorums of the world. They don't deserve it at all. There's no real sense that Joram had anything that he could lean on to ask for God to do. But God showed up for him in a most undeserved way. And he can do that for you. It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Some of us are maybe a lot more like Jehoshaphat. We've struggled with all kinds of things. We generally have a good heart. We want to walk with God. And some days we seem to do that so well. And other days, yeah, not so much. And sometimes we just seem to have backed ourselves into a corner, driven down a dead-end street that we didn't mean to be on. And we should have known better. We should have sought God sooner. We should have prayed further, faster, sooner, whatever it was. And I just want you to know, for the Jehoshaphats of life, God's there for you. Undeserved, wonderfully, compassionately there for you. This is an amazing God. It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And by the way, there's a third king here. He doesn't even have a name, King of Edom. Didn't even get a name in the book. And some of you are like the king of Edom. He didn't want to be there in those circumstances. He didn't want to be a party to all of this. He didn't have a choice. Life bulldozed him, and there he was stuck in the wilderness with these two other goofballs of kings and his own army dying in the wilderness in a place he knew better than to take his own army, but there he's stuck with it. And some of you, your life circumstances are like that. You didn't cause it, you didn't choose it, you didn't rebel into it, but you got swept up in it in one way or another. And I just want to say, for the king of Edom, God showed up. It was an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Whatever is your circumstance, whether you caused it, whether you tripped up into it, or whether you got swept up into it, in any circumstance, our gracious, compassionate God is a God for whom it is an easy thing to bring you and me an undeserved victory. Will you seek him? When we're done in a few moments, there'll be people who are willing to pray with you up front. It may be that you go, hey, I've, I'm in bad circumstances. And if it's really not too late to pray, I need someone to pray with me. There'll be people up here. We would be honored to pray with you. Just like Elisha showed up at the right time to pray, there's people who will pray with you. Don't walk away. Don't keep blaming God. Don't keep hiding when there's a God who wants to meet you. It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for everybody that's here. Thank you for their faithfulness to be a part of this family of God. Lord, would you continue to show us that you are the Lord Almighty, the God for whom it is an easy thing. 
whatever we face. We face some challenging things, but maybe none more difficult than having tens of thousands of people we're responsible for that are dying in a wilderness. You met them, you can meet us. We trust you. We lean into you. We need you, God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.